This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? We'll see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me? You know the story on Wade's World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Professor Andrew Fiala, who is a professor at California, at Fresno State, California State University at Fresno. Um, and he's also uh, written a book that is not our usual subject, but a good one, Tyranny, From Plato to Trump, Fools, Syncophants, and Citizens. Welcome to Wade's World, Professor. Hi, Wade. Thanks for having me on. I don't know if we want to talk about the citizens or the fools first, but uh, what, what you have a, a great sense of these categories that make up our population now. Let's, uh, how does this impact on tyranny and what do we need to do with it? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about three characters that are, are, we see them in our own lives, in our businesses, in our government, um, and in the history of philosophy and the history of literature. And those three characters are the tyrant, the person that wants to seize power, kind of the bully, right? We know we know those folks exist in our businesses and in our families. Um, and then the suck-ups, these are the sycophants. These are the people who make it possible for the bully to rise to power. And then in the background are the citizens who can sometimes fail to be wise. <laughs> so I call them fools. Sometimes I even use the word moron to talk about the masses, the mob. And it's all of us because we all have this problem. We can all um, kind of close our eyes and, and be willfully foolish. Well, and, and we can also be hopefully wise, but we can also be sycophants sometimes, you say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, this happens, you know, I mean, for example, at work, right, if someone gets promoted up the chain of command and then next thing you know, everyone's sucking up to that person who gets the promotion. You know, it's sort of – Sort of the way power works, where you know the people people who are in power pull people into their circle, and those are the suck ups or the sycophants. There's worse words for that, you know. By the way, <laughs> kind of you know obscene words for what what those people do. And we've um, all heard those words, Professor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I'm sure I'm sure we have, and, and we especially know, we know what you're talking about, unfortunately. But uh, uh, everybody likes to be on the winning winning side. Everybody takes credit once you win. I mean, there's. Uh, that may be the biggest of these categories. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. And the thing about those folks, you know, again, it's us because we all can tend to do this. We kind of know better. <laughs> you know, we should we know we shouldn't be doing it, but you can't help yourself because power sort of works that way. So people who you'd think would know better end up sucking up. And, you know, I, the, the book is also I mean, it's about us. It's about life, the universe and everything. But it's really also about Trump. And so we saw some of those characters in the Trump era. These are, you know, names that we some of us may want to forget, but it's, you know, Michael Cohen and Rudy Giuliani and these people who uh, they should know better. But nonetheless, they find themselves kind of pulled into the orbit of the powerful per person, the bully, the, the tyrant. Um, and that's dangerous, I think. That's very dangerous. But President Trump weren't so cheap. I mean, he probably by hundreds of your copies of your book, because I don't know that he's ever been linked in one sentence with Plato. 
<laughs> well, that would be great, wouldn't it, if he if he would read the book? <laughs> well, that that would never happen because I think he's always been clear he does not really like to read. But uh, um, the notion of Plato and Trump, I mean, what does Plato say about Trump? Yeah, well, so uh, you Trump know, and the rest of them, I guess I should say. There's a big crowd these days. Oh yeah, no, I mean, there's there's and there's a his, there's a history of this for you know 2,500 years. There's been these tyrannical personalities, let's call them, right? People who who are inflamed by ego and the Greeks use this word hubris, which means pride. It's sort of like, you know, uh, egomaniacal pride. So total, total self-absorption, right? That's the problem of the tyrant. And the ancient Greeks knew about this. We see this in the Roman, you know, this is, these are people like Nero and Caligula, like the kind of worst characters we can imagine from history. Shakespeare talked about these people. And it's, you know, it's all the way through the 20th century. Then, you know, like the rogues gallery of bad guys, you know, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, these people, um, you know, it, it, the world was all about them and they didn't care who they hurt. They don't care uh, really about the truth. In fact, they define the truth in terms of whatever they say. They define the good in terms of whatever they want. And they define the beautiful in their own self-image, you know, so Plato, Plato warned about these folks. Um we see him today in our own, you know, ordinary lives, and we see him in the political stage too, and they're very, very dangerous. And uh, I mean, in our lifetime, or at least in my lifetime, I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson and the, you know, Vietnam War, when regularly you, you got to learn the word hubris if you never cared about Greek, um, sort of pride to a fault. But these. Uh, why would this tyranny be so popular? I mean, we have so many tyrants now. We're seeing this in Ukraine. We're seeing this, you know, in Hungary. We're seeing, I mean, mm -hmm. is, uh, are we going through a phase where this has become a, a go-to for some well, leaders? Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned Johnson. Um, and we could, go, we could go back through American history and beyond. It, this is nothing new, right? So I think, you know, it's important for people to remember that that history repeats itself because human nature is kind of constant, you know? So um, we're seeing, you know, these kind of power hungry authoritarians rise up, but they've always been with us, right? It's, it's part of us. I mean, it's us. Human beings have this tendency to, um, to be stupid and immoral. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, part of the good news is that, that there are systems and there are solutions that prevent it, tyranny from becoming its, its worst case scenario, right? So the part of the good news story I tell in the book is about the success of the American system that Trump moved along. I mean, he's still not gone, you know, but um, he was not able to, to pull off what some of the other folks in history have done, which is to stay in power, to consolidate power. Um, so it's, you know, it's a common human problem. And with this word tyrant shows up throughout history, the American founders, they thought King George in Britain was a tyrant, um, and the founders themselves were also tyrannical. They owned slaves, and slavery is, you know, one of the worst forms of tyranny. So um, none of us are perfect, and it's a, it's an ongoing challenge to deal with this part of our our soul, this part of our human nature, this this tendency to, you know, to be egoistic and narcissistic and ignore morality and truth. Um, uh, and there, you know, history helps us learn how to avoid these problems. 
if we just wise up, <laughs> you know, and if we create systems like the American Constitution that, that do their best to prevent tyrants from consolidating power. Well, one problem you cite is that uh, tyranny is also sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, the flag is waved in both directions, uh, whether it's the Trump situation or King George or whatever. Um, both yeah. sides are often pointing at each other as uh, supporting tyranny and trying to oppose tyranny. How do we reconcile that? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, this is an ongoing problem. Is this word tyrant? It's just used as a as a, a club to beat up on someone you don't like. Often, so the most famous example of this is Abraham Lincoln. He was accused of being a tyrant by folks in the Confederacy, and when John Wilkes Booth shot him, uh, he purportedly said this phrase: "Seek semper tyrannis." Thus, always to tyrants. And he was quoting something from the history of literature, which was more or less what Brutus was supposed to have said when he stabbed Julius Caesar. Um, you know, and the, the issue there, I mean, like fundamental question, was Lincoln a tyrant? And how, how do we make sense of that? So each side accuses the other of being tyrannical. This, again, is kind of part of human nature and um, history is that we use these words, including that word fool or moron, the word we talked about at the beginning. We use these words to basically belittle people we don't like. So that happens. Philosophers like me, what we want to do is make sure we're more careful with our language. So, you know, I would go back through all of that history and say, well, you know, Lincoln, probably not a tyrant in the same way that Nero was, right? Um, Trump, maybe sort of tyrannical, but certainly not as bad as Hitler or Mussolini, right? So I think it's important to be very careful with our language. Um, and we're well, often Hillary not. Hillary Clinton learned that as she spoke of <laughs> these morons or fools, as you're referring to, as uh, what, despicables, or I forget what her term was. but uh, Deplorables, her, I think. Deplorables, yeah. oh my God, I've, I've repressed that. We're talking to Professor Andrew Fela, who's written a book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump Fools, Syncophants, and Citizens. The uh, Constitution, you argue, and you were just mentioning this, is a semi-protector on this, but uh, we have a, and we just uh, approved the first uh, black woman as a judge on the Supreme Court here, um, but we have quite a lot of arguments about what the Constitution really is for, right now. Uh, so it's, it's worrisome to see that as sort of our, uh, you know, last resort place where we can protect against tyranny. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I hear you. Um, it's, it, it is the last resort protection against tyranny because that's the, the rule of the land, right? That's, that's the law that rules over us. Um, and it kind of works, but I think it's important for Americans to remember that the constitution did not start out perfect and it's not perfect today, right? So we, we've continued to improve it. And I think we, there's still work to be done, right? So you know, part of the good news is that it seemed to work on January 6th of 2021 when, you know, those rioters invaded the Capitol. And, you know, there was, I mean, that day was like history was on the balance there, but the system seemed to work and Trump moved on and we got a new president installed and the system sort of worked as designed. Of course, that day showed us that it's fragile, 
right? And there's all kinds of interesting questions about what could have gone wrong and, and you know, how things could have been much worse. Um, I think, you know, we need to take those uh, risky moments seriously and, and think about what we might do to improve things. But also, I think it's important to remember that we have improved things. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about the founders and slavery. Slavery was woven into the Constitution from the beginning, but eventually it was removed. It took a bloody war and a whole bunch of terrible things, but we made that improvement. We've given women the right to vote. And as you mentioned now, you know, we have the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. So we make progress. Um, I think we need, we need to keep track of that because there are hopeful things, right? Um, even though, as you say, you know, th- there are risks and the, the Constitution isn't perfect and things could go otherwise, you know. So take those warnings seriously and then think about what we need to do to, to maintain the system in order to prevent tyrants from consolidating power. As a philosopher, uh, what's your take on this argument about originalists uh, as they look at the Constitution? You mentioned, obviously, it was a been an invaluable document in the U.S., but it hasn't been replicated in any other country, which is an interesting point you obviously remind us of. And this sort of caucus within the Supreme Court and among our conservative brothers and sisters that we need to look at only the original language from back then to determine how the Constitution works. What's your view of that? Uh, yeah, you know, terms, not political terms or whatever. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not a legal scholar, so I know there's some really technical details there that the the lawyers and jurists will appeal to. But um, <laughs> I w- I would just throw this into the mix: is that we almost nobody wants to stay with the original anything, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we, uh, human beings make progress, and um, you know, we, we, we conduct experiments. So we try something. If it works, let's stick with it, but let's try to improve it. And if it's broken, let's fix it, you know. So I think one of the virtues I see in the constitutional system that we have here is that it can be amended, right? So, you know, it starts out with those first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, that, that are added as important protections of human rights. And then all the way through the amendment, the Civil War amendments that abolish slavery and the 19th Amendment that gives women the right to vote and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, the original Constitution... I wouldn't want to go back to the the original. Now I know that's not quite exactly what the the lawyers are talking about, but um, you know I think it's not we need that to, far away. Yeah, I mean it, may, it might be. You know, so there's you know what what exactly do they intend with going back to the original? But you know I'm a um, I'm a pragmatist about these things. Like let's see what works. Let's conduct some experiments, and then let's fix things and improve them, and let's think about moving forward instead of going backward. Exactly. I mean, uh, let's go into the weeds here. So Plato and Aristotle, as you point out in the book, had very different views of uh, how we should deal with tyranny, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably your public education here on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, your your listeners probably know that, the, like the one thing most people know about Plato is he had this idea of the philosopher king. So, you know, kind of this mythical figure that Plato created. Plato's solution, he well, first off, he was not a fan of democracy. He thought democracy was very dangerous because it put the fools in charge, the people. He thought the people were uneducated and unvirtuous, so we don't want to have democracy. It's too dangerous. And in fact, he predicted 
that if we had too much democracy, the people would choose a tyrant. <laughs> they would elect a tyrant, put a tyrant in charge over them, who would take advantage of them. So his solution was this philosopher king, who's supposed to be like a wise and benevolent but all-powerful person. Um, we know, I think we know in the modern world that that doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, this problem of, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, the, the constitutional framers also knew that history, and they did not create a philosopher king system. They created a system with checks and balances. Um, and so they learned that, you know, they learned the whole problem from Plato, but they improved upon it. And I think that's the, a good lesson from the history of philosophy and the history of politics is, you know, we're not going to go back to an era with kings, with people who have absolute power. That's dangerous. We know that's dangerous. So let's try to find a way to make democracy work and fix it so that tyrants can't take advantage of us, which is, again, I think what the what the founders came up with, with this constitutional system, with the separation of powers and checks and balances and so on. And. Aristotle's position and and others uh, about how a republic should work? Yeah, well, you know, Aristotle is an interesting player in this story. Um, he was the teacher of Alexander the Great. Many people know that, like, I guess, trivial pursuit, you know, history of philosophy. Alexander the Great was a tyrant. So Aristotle, you know, taught a, a person who became a tyrant, and there's some really terrible things that Alexander ended up doing. Um, one of Aristotle's approaches is to say that all throughout all of this, we need to focus on virtue. And, you know, if there is going to be a, a ruler who has uh, power over us, we want that person to be a good person, a wise person, an enlightened person. Um, but Aristotle knew, like Plato did, that this really doesn't ever happen. <laughs> so, you know, there are warnings from literally from uh, Aristotle's own life. And, and, you know, the end of Aristotle's life, you know, he lived in Athens. He was, he was kicked out of Athens. They forced him to, to flee because of what Alexander the Great did. The, Alexander was this tyrant and um, the Athenians knew it and they did not like Aristotle as a result, because he was Alexander's teacher. So, you know, one of the lessons we learned from all of that ancient Greek history is, you know, a, a system of, of absolute power is very unstable. One solution is to make sure that those people with power are virtuous and wise, but it's, it's very difficult to make sure that that happens. Indeed, and it's also this problem of how you create a citizen, a citizen body that can hold them accountable, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I argue then, you know, towards the conclusion of my book is that what we need in, in the United States are educated citizens. You know, it's a democratic system. We vote for our representatives. We vote for the president. We need to make sure that we are engaged, educated, enlightened, wise, virtuous. And that's us. That's, that's each, each and every one of us, you know. And we all have the tendency to be stupid. <laughs> I do too. You know, and you know, I'm a philosophy professor, but you know, come Friday night, I want to drink a beer and watch Netflix or, you know what I mean? Like um, we, we all have this tendency to, to want to zone out and not pay attention. And the bad guys take advantage of that. You know, they, they take advantage of our, of our foolishness. So, you know, part of the solution is for all of us to just wake up 
pay closer attention. And I think, you know, there, there's some remedies here, which include civic education, moral education, uh, better media, you know, radio shows like this that actually talk about important ideas. Um, we need more of that in our country. And I think, um, I think that would be an important part of the solution. We're talking to Professor Andrew Fiala, who's a professor at Fresno State in California, and he's written a book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Full Syncopants and Citizens. You know, part of the problem, Professor, is, uh, I mean, from everything that you read, at least, uh, I know when I was in junior high school, I somehow didn't get one elect, ended up in a civics class, which made a world of difference in my life, as it turned out. But there are fewer and fewer uh, schools on the public school system that are often civics from what I read. And that's a problem for what you're arguing we need to do. Y- yes, you're right. I think this is, uh, we're, we're at a weird inflection point here. And you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen these stories, maybe covered them and talked about them on your radio show about the pushback against teachers and against school boards, right? This worry about critical race theory and all the rest of this stuff. Um, you know, the teachers in our country are the front line of our democracy, right? They're, they're producing the voters. You know, those kids turn 18, they vote, or they can. We hope they vote. Um, and they need, these kids, you know, no one's born understanding the Constitution, and no one's born uh, moral, right? That's all. That all takes education. So um, I think we need to support the teachers and, and support structures that that – Get, that you know allow for civic and moral education, and let's not be afraid to say that um, we want our citizens to be educated. Um, there, there's there's this weird backlash, and this is part of the tyrant problem, part of the sycophant problem. There's a weird backlash against education in our country. Uh, it's crazy, <laughs> you know. Thomas Thomas Jefferson famously said, you know, the the antidote to problems of democracy is more and better education. The founders knew this. Of course, again, they weren't they weren't great at this, but we've discovered this over the last hundred years. The the, the melting pot that our country is it, it all happens through the public schools. We need to support that and encourage civic education. Teach the next generation of students um, what democracy is all about, why it matters, um, and 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 as you said we're sometimes not doing that as well as we could. So, you know, part of the solution is whatever we can do to, to teach and learn and to learn and teach and on and on and on. You know, I'm a professor. So of course I would say that um, we do that in, in higher ed as well. So there's a deep drain of anti-intellectualism that's been present in the U S forever, isn't there? I mean, I know yeah. there's a, a classic uh, history uh, on this issue. It was a Hofstadter or something. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, th- this is, this is a problem. Um, we, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, we could go way, way back, but, um, you know, the, the know nothings that came to power about a hundred years ago, like deliberately, they, they literally affirmed this. Who would want to wear that t-shirt? Really? Yeah. Right. But they wanted <laughs> to be the know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. Gotcha. Go ahead. Yeah, no. And it's, you know, there was backlash against the teaching of evolution, right? Um, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, hatred, is, if that's the right word, maybe too strong, but dislike of science. This came all the way through the pandemic with, you know, issues about mac- uh, vaccines and masks and so on. Um, this, again, perennial problem. Martin Luther King called, you know, he identified this as a great phrase he used called conscientious stupidity. 
And the idea is people don't want to know about things they don't like. You know, they don't want their illusions to be burst. And again, again, perennial problem, but we're seeing it again in our country. I think this, you know, the, the kind of science denial, you know, related to problems like climate change and so on. Um, we prefer to live in a little world of comfortable illusions. That's really dangerous, right? Because then we're not in touch with reality. If you don't mind me adding one thing here about, you know, the so-called big lie, you know, this all this conversation about uh, fraudulent elections and the big lie. Why do people believe that? Well, they, I think they believe it because they want to believe it, right? So it's, it's not about truth. It's about desire or appetite or self-interest. Plato saw this problem. That's, a, that's the danger, right? And we, you know, it, it, take it now away from the political arena, put it into our own families and our own lives. Same problem for like a, a, a woman who's being abused by her husband. And she says to herself, yes, but he loves me. You know, like we tell ourselves these, these lies all the time in order to allow ourselves to exist in a world that's sometimes ugly and complicated. We prefer it to be simple. We prefer it to just, you know, make, a, make us feel better. And we avoid the truth for that reason, I think. Well, it's also a tribal problem. I mean, to the degree that uh, unity is important, but it becomes atomized in a country as large as the U.S. or elsewhere. I mean, it's these sort of fake news conspiracies that have fertile, fertile soil everywhere and very little accountability. I mean, look how long it's taken to get Alex Jones and InfoWars to, to uh, I mean, Connecticut courts now are holding him in, you know, contempt and a $25,000 a day kind of uh, fine threat. But, I mean, it's, it's weird out there among uh, our citizen philosophers. Professor, <laughs> we, we, have to, we have to be... Uh, Probably we're glad that uh, the days of, of the Greeks and Aristotle, uh, where uh, our professorial class is not held responsible for what all of our citizens are doing, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're, I think you're kind of asking, like, whose fault is this, right? Well, I mean, obviously they saw it as Aristotle's fault. It's hard to blame the University of Pennsylvania and uh, Wharton and wherever for Trump, Um Wherever he went to school, I can't remember right now, but I know Wharton was part of what he claimed. Uh, mm-hmm. And where they, you know, it's uh, but the, it is difficult. We need the broadest kinds of public and civic education we can get, but we're not willing to support that right now, are we? No, it's it's that's that's the, one of the fundamental problems. So you know, one of the one of my arguments in the book, and as I've been talking about it in the last month or so with a bunch of folks, is. Um, the need to understand a, a broad education in history and the humanities. You know, I, w- one of the reasons I wrote this book is like there are things to be learned from Plato and the ancient Greeks and from Shakespeare and Roman history and the history of the American founding. Um, we, we need to inform ourselves about our own history and with the critical edge, right? Again, so it's not, again, not saying we want to go back to the Greeks. And as you, we talked about earlier, the founders were flawed because of slavery and so on. So let's study that and let's learn from this history about human nature, about what works, about what doesn't work, and about what we've improved. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's really the solution is for, for 
you know, people to read and think. <laughs> but of course, as you mentioned, we live in a culture of fake news and most people's reading, you know, is like as, as big as the screen on their phone. That's about all that anybody wants to, to read. Um, well, let's read, think, and then act. And uh, I was going to ask what you were hoping for in the book, and now you've said that. So let's talk about how can people get a copy of your book, uh, Professor? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So it's, you know, it's it's available on Amazon. The The title's Tyranny from Plato to Trump. If folks want to learn more about me, I have a website, andrewfiala.com. Um, you can find me pretty easily with through, with a Google search. Um, I wrote I write a, a weekly column for our local newspaper, so I publish that up on my website. If folks are more interested in my work, um, why don't you they can spell find me. Uh, Fiala so that people can find? Yeah, it it's Fiala, F-I-A-L-A, Andrew Fiala. And what is that? The Fresno Bee. What's the name of that paper? Yeah, our newspaper here is the Fresno Bee. And I, I, I'm also been writing recently for a, another new media startup. So, um, yeah, you can find me online. I'm there. I'm in Twitter and Facebook and so on. Be glad to, favorite, for folks to find me. My favorite cousin was uh, publisher of the Fresno Bee uh, for a little while back in Modesto and Fresno Bee when uh, back when Kidder, right? What is it now? Uh, was a, uh, well, they sold it now, and she's long gone from being a publisher. But, yeah, um, well, best of luck on this. this uh, we've been talking to Professor Andrew Fiala, who's written a book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Anchor and Citizens. All of you really want to be a citizen in this uh, of those three. So uh, look for his book. He has a website. And thank you for being with us, uh, Professor. This yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, a pleasure. Um, Outside of our normal lane, but it's good to talk about it. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen and will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rafty from Wage World. Thank you.